from Arctic Mind. I'm Dylan Stevens, and this is As Seen From Here. Welcome back. It's great to be here again with you all. On today's podcast, steroid implants for diabetic macular edema. And the way I look at it in my mind is you got to fight a battle on two fronts. You got to fight a VEGF battle and you got to fight an inflammatory battle. From photocoagulation to intravitreal therapy, the treatment for diabetic macular edema has evolved a great deal over the past few decades. With the success of anti-VEGF therapy taking center stage, the role of corticosteroids has taken somewhat of a backseat in the treatment algorithms of many physicians. Concerns regarding potential intraocular pressure rise and cataract formation give some pause to the use of intravitreal steroids. However, long-acting and slow-release intravitreal steroid implants may provide significant disease control while decreasing frequency of intravitreal injections. My guest today is Dr. Michael Singer of the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, to speak a bit about one such steroid implant and its efficacy and safety. All right, so we're going to be discussing your uh, paper today uh, regarding the 36-month follow-up of the Paladin study. Um, before we really dive into it, uh, you know, this is a study focused on the fluosinolone acetonide implant, the safety and efficacy of this device. And before we get into the specifics about the implant and the results, I just want to talk a little bit about the role of corticosteroids in general in the treatment of diabetic macular edema. So corticosteroids, um, I truly believe is an underappreciated modality in diabetic macular edema. We all know that we use anti-VEGFs and although they work very well, the early study that was published by my dear friend, Victor Gonzalez, really talked about the fact that about 30% of people in protocol I did have residual fluid and did have suboptimal vision gains when you looked at this set of people. And I ran some studies as well, looking at the US retina database, looking at people getting anti-VEGF injections and showing that there's can be as much as 50% of people with residual fluid after one or two years. And a lot of work done by Tom Chula as well, that essentially we undertreat people and we leave a lot of potential vision on the table, as well as the fact that we're not really good at getting all the fluid in all the people. And you know, it's been known for a long time that especially in DME, there is not only a VEGF mediated component, there's an inflammatory mediated component and steroids are well known for treating the inflammatory mediated component. And there are lots of different clinical trials that show even as the DRSS score gets worse, the VEGF level remains relatively the same while the other inflammatory modulators go up. I mean, I'm a simple guy. If I put a tourniquet on my arm, it first gets red, which is what I call the VEGF component, and then it swells up, which is the inflammatory component. So I believe steroid definitely has roles. Obviously, there are limitations, most of which are based on people's fear of the intraocular pressure profile. And what's really nice about the Paladin study is it was set up to look at those people that essentially that had a pre-treatment challenge with a corticosteroid and see if we could make the IOP numbers see significantly better than they were in the FAME trial where there weren't a steroid challenge. Gotcha. Now, uh, one of the obvious questions regarding treatment of DME or you know other intraocular pathology with steroids is 
what steroid. So there's, there's a, a number of different steroids that are used in the intravitreal space, be it the dexamethasone implant or simple triamcinolone injections. Why fluocinolone acetonide? Does that offer any specific advantage over other formulations? Well, I think a couple of things. We got to take a step back and look at potency of steroids. Triamcinolone and Goodman and Gilman has a has a number reference of five, while dexamethasone and fluocinolone both are twenty five. So both of them are stronger steroids, but they're much harder to basically keep in solution, which is why when you see triamcinolone, it's basically a powder that essentially becomes crystals in the eye. While if you inject decadron in the eye, it's essentially fluid that runs out into the trabecular mesh work very quickly. So the story is, is that the stronger steroids do a better job of drying, um, but essentially they have to be packaged in some type of an implant. And you know, like I said, dexamethasone is in the dex implant or Ozodex, while fluocinolone initially was in Redisert, but now essentially is in the um, alluvian implant for diabetes or the uteic implant for uveitic macular edema. Um, what's nice about the implants is that number one, they have a relatively predictable rate of release and you know exactly how much you're getting. A good friend of mine, Carl Chalky, did some work about 10 years ago looking at Kenalog or triamcinolone and realized depending on how you draw it up and how the crystals are, it can be all over the map. So that 0.1 milligram, that 0.1 cc of what you think is four milligrams per milliliter could be anywhere from two to eight. What's really nice about the implants is you know what you get. So the different steroids um, are important because you understand the release rates, so you know what you're getting, and you have a better, a better idea of what your safety is as well. Um, I would say, you know, when, when I look at steroids, I typically jump to, you know, dexamethasone implant over triamcinolone because number one, my patients are happier because they don't have that snow globe effect that going in their eye. I'm happier because I don't see pseudoendophthalmitis in my um, pseudophagic patients. And I also know that the dexamethasone implant works really well in vitrectomized eyes. So the good news is that, you know, Steroids in water don't do very well, they mix together. So, you know, the sink that you potentially lose when you take out the vitreous is not affected when you put implants in the back of the eye. That's really interesting to know about uh, triamcinolone injections that there can be so much variability. And certainly that's an attractive feature of the implant, you know, a, a very um, planned and uh, known dose that you're inserting into the patient's eye. Let's talk a little bit about that implant. How long does it typically function? And do we know what the actual circulating dose at any particular moment is? Sure. So, I mean, let's talk, I'm going to take a step back and talk about implants in general. So essentially a dexamethasone implant has 0.07 micrograms of dexamethasone in the implant, while um, the fusinolone implant has 0.19 micrograms of fusinolone. The issue is important to understand that these two implants operate differently. So what I like to think of when I look, think of Ozodex or dexamethasone implant, it's a fire hose. So as a fire hose, what you're getting is you're getting a boost at the beginning within the first few weeks. And then it goes down probably over the first, you know, about two to three months. And then it pretty much lasts in most people around four months. The fluocinolone implant is a different animal. It's a slow and steady release. 
and it doesn't have this peak. So it's a steady state release factor. And that the 0.19 micrograms of fusidolin implant basically is given slow and steady over time. I look at it as a bit of a drip system. So essentially, you know, in the beginning, you want to, you need a whole lot of fire hose when you've got a fire, but over time, you want a bit of a drip system to keep everything nice and controlled because essentially over time, you don't need that much water to control the fire as long as you've got something that's slowly working over time. And a good number of these people can go to three years. And one of the things that we're seeing in the Paladin study is 25% of people didn't need a rescue injection during the three-year period of the study. Yeah, I, I can certainly see the advantage of having that drip system, like you mentioned, for continuous control. And then if if there was a need for rescue therapy, certainly you can supplement it. But And like you mentioned, the, the Ozerdex implants being a quote-unquote fire hose, I like that analogy, is beneficial in certain circumstances, but I think for the long term, you want more of a, a more consistent and drip type delivery. Um, so let's talk about the FAME study a little bit. That's the flucinolone acidinide in diabetic macular edema study. Can you talk about exactly what that showed in terms of efficacy of this implant? So when we, so we, what was interesting is the FAME study showed that there was definitely an improvement in patient's vision over time and it got approved in patient. You know, this was a study that was done a long time ago that we didn't particularly, you know, um, it was to get the medicine approved. So again, we didn't know what we didn't know. And understanding that, you know, it definitely did a very good job in controlling people, especially people with chronic macular edema. The problem with the FAME trial is that everybody was a little put off by the fact that there was a IOP-related events of surgical intervention of intraocular pressure of 5%. And, the, and when we looked at it, the story was when they did a deeper dive, what they realized when they looked at people who had, um, who basically had a, a prior steroid challenge and didn't have an IOP elevation, the amount of IOP lowering surgery was, you know, significantly lower than those people who never had its prior tri trial of steroids and ending up their first steroid challenge was when the medicine was used. As a result, there was a label issue that talked about the fact that you have to do a steroid challenge when you use the alluvian implant. So again, I think the concept was that what people worry about was, am I going to end up having to do intraocular surgery when I give um, an alluvian implant? And that was the motivation for the Paladin trial. So again, I think that was what's really important to understand is that Paladin trial was really more of a safety trial than even an efficacy trial. The efficacy was, was amazing to see, but the reality was we really wanted to show is in real life, if we kind of weed out those people who really are steroid responders, what are the real incidents of IOP numbers? And the IOP numbers are really pretty acceptable. Yeah, certainly I think that the theory is what uh, scares a lot of people about doing a long-term long steroid in the eye, that there's a theoretical chance of that increase in pressure. And certainly the FAME study that scared some people off in terms of the, the rate of incisional glaucoma surgery. But I think that the, the rates uh, shown in the Paladin study, especially this 36-month follow-up, 
I know there was some previous information um, uh, published about the 24-month follow-up, but this is this is really great, really great stuff. So, I mean, it really is something to understand because the reality is when we're looking at the number of patients who essentially, um, you know, needed to have incisional surgery, we're looking at very small numbers. I mean, when it's all said and done, we're looking at 3% of people who needed um, surgery. And when it's really all said and done, half of those were neovascular. So again, you were really looking at tiny numbers. So again, yes. And even when you look at the IOP issues in terms of the fact over 10, you know, there were about 20% of people, 21 to be exact, over 25, there, you know, 10, 25 millimeters of mercury, about 24%, over 30, about 11%. You only had 2% trabeculoplasty and only 20% of people needed IOP lowering medication. These numbers are half a thing. So again, one of the things we really wanted to do when we created the Paladin study was to say, look, yes, fame is what got the medicine approved, but the reality is all the things you worried about in fame could be seriously mitigated by the steroid challenge. And the other thing you get on the efficacy standpoint is, you know, people, I mean, there are great medicines out there that, you know, furisumab is a great medicine. Let me be clear. I was in the furisumab trials. I speak and I, and I did the research for Genentech and I'm in the original Truckee trial, which Carl Danzig presented recently at the ASRS showing real life um, value of this. Um, Alluvian's been around for a long time. I mean, it's already had this sustained release medication, decreased treatment burden. And when you look at the concept of the treatment burden in patients treated with Alluvian, it's pretty amazing because when it's all said and done, patients who essentially needed, um, needed treatment, they, you know, the mean number of treatments that were rescued per year were two. And essentially, when you looked at people before they got the Alluvian implant in the Paladin trial, they lost six letters in vision. And they were, you know, when we look at the number of treatments they got per year in real life, essentially 65% of people got three or more treatments per year. And when after they got the palliative, after the, the alluvian was given, they went the opposite direction. You gained 4.5 letters, which the same 65% of people only needing zero to two treatments. So again, talking about reducing treatment burden, you know, we make a big deal about the new medicines. And let me be clear, I love, I mean, I think Verisimab is going to be a game changer as well as port delivery system. However, it is funny that people have kind of always kind of forgotten about that steroids have been there for a long time and the alluvian implant has been delivering this type of long-term efficacy with minimal rescues for a number of years. Now, the patients that were looked at in terms of the alluvian implant, were they considered... Uh, what we would traditionally call non-responders to anti-VEGF therapy prior to this implant? Or were they, you know, any group of patients within a particular practice? I think they were any group. They weren't as much of the train wrecks as you typically would see. And what's interesting is the fame people were pretty much at that time, they were people who really were at the end of the line. But the interesting thing is when we look at the people in the Paladin trial, you have about a third of people who really have good vision, about 20, about 30, third of patients were 20, 40 or better, and a third of patients were OCT, CST under 300. So you have a lot of people that essentially were much better controlled than were in the FAME trial. And to be sure, those people who were better controlled and had less injections ended up having better vision 
ended also having less need for IOP spikes. I mean, the concept is if you had less shots to begin with, you ended up with less shots and less IOP problems at the end. So I do think the fact that having these harder to treat patients, um, you know, they're, they're great for this medication, but you have to obviously modify your expectations because none of these people were, were essentially treated naive. And that's why there's a study coming called New Day where really you're going to get a better understanding of the potential of the flucinolone implant in patients who are treated compared to patients with aflibercept. And it's an 18-month study. So again, you really get to see what's the, what's the potential visual improvement in these patients if you're able to start them from scratch. Gotcha. Now, aside from uh, retinal pathology or macular edema secondary to diabetes, uh, those patients that were included in the study, did we have any information regarding whether they had a pre-implant diagnosis of glaucoma, if they had any history of ocular hypertension, anything that may put them at a slightly greater risk of having an IOP spike? So basically, you had to, you had to go through a steroid challenge. So if you had a history of glaucoma, um, most of those people were excluded from the trial. And basically, you also had to go through a steroid challenge. And some people did drops and some people did Ozernex. But again, this is real life. And we took real life people to go forward. But so essentially, we were trying to weed out as many of those steroid responders as we could, because again, that's what the label shows. Now, was everybody, um, was everybody probably as pure uh, non-steroid responder? You know, that I, it's hard to tell. But I'm talking about um, if you used it on label, the numbers pretty much you can take with you to say, look, you're going to about, you know, 20% of your patients are going to end up with medications. And, you know, a very, very small number of people were going to get incisional surgery. And to be honest, a lot of those people may have even benefited from, um, you know, SLT, but there were very few of them performed in the trial because just, again, it wasn't mandated how you how you treated the IOP when it rained, when it was elevated. Now, one of the other considerations when giving intravitreal steroids is the patient's uh, phagic status, whether they're pseudophagic or phagic. I noticed that uh, there were 29 patients uh, that were phagic that were involved in the study. And within those 36 months, it seems that 18 of them underwent cataract surgery. Do you feel like that was related to the implant or... Oh, I do. So I, I do. So again, one of the interesting things is, again, we're you know, so we spend a lot of time, you know, subconsciously comparing apples to apples, right? And so it's very simple to say, let's take fame. Well, the number of patients in fame who were fakic was significantly higher. So you only had 15% of people fakic in this trial. So understanding diabetes in general makes people get cataracts sooner. I would say steroids definitely accelerate it. And I would say, look, when you think about giving a steroid over, especially something like this, which is going to give you medication over time, I think a conversation that cataract surgery is definitely in the possibility. However, you know, especially for my relatively older patients, I actually think cataract surgery is the only advantage of getting older in, in, in the world. And I'm a little older, so I can tell you with experience, wisdom is overrated. I can get you out of glasses, or I can have my friends get you out of glasses by putting a, a multifocal lens in your eye. It's not such a big deal. Um, so I think the reality is, yes, for my younger patients, I would definitely have a little bit of pause. But for my older patients, I wouldn't let the cataract keep me up at night.
Now, I, I believe you mentioned it a little bit before, but I just wanted to reiterate, uh, in this cohort of patients, what was the rate of rescue therapy and was it generally anti-VEGF therapy or was it additional steroid or something else? So the, there was, a, yeah, so when we look at the rate of rescue therapy, the rescue therapy essentially was, um, like I said, 65% of people were about zero to two rescue therapies, and then three to five is about 25, and, and greater than five was 8.42. So again, most of the people um, who had rescue therapy essentially had rescue therapy with anti-VEGF therapy. I mean, there was some supplementation with Ozerdex as well, but the vast majority is anti-VEGF. And it's interesting to note when you, so my personal experience is having done a lot of these, is that if you think of DME as a fight on two fronts, right? Earlier, I talked about a tourniquet, that basically there's what happens in front of the tourniquet and what happens behind the tourniquet. In front of the tourniquet, your arm gets red. Behind the tourniquet, your arm gets swollen, right? So the reality is if you think of VEGF, right? There's a VEGF component all the time, right? That's why you have progression of retinopathy, but there's also an inflammatory component, which is especially involved in these patients with longstanding macular edema. When I typically give an anti-VEGF, and I'm going to make this conversation prior to 2022, before farisumab, because I don't think we have that data yet, you know, whether I was using Lucentis or ILEA, I get maybe one or two months when I would give these people a shot for diabetic macular edema. It's interesting, when patients had alluvian on board, I get twice as much. And the way I look at it in my mind is you gotta fight a battle on two fronts. You gotta fight a VEGF battle and you gotta fight an inflammatory battle. If you have the alluvian on board, the inflammatory battle's already fought for you, right? All you gotta do is anti-VEGF is be an anti-VEGF. Go after VEGF. And that's why I think you have a longer duration of action because the medicine only has to do one job. So I think that's one of the reasons why you see so few rescue injections going forward because essentially you're only fighting on one front, which is why 68% of people only needed zero to two because I think those anti-VEGF lasted much longer given the fact that all it has to do is fight VEGF and not fight inflammation. I mean, I've never even thought about the the combination of the two as a possibility before. I think historically, the way I've understood treating macular edema or diabetic retinopathy with anti-VEGF is to exhaust the ability of anti-VEGF and then transition to steroids eventually. But this really opened my eyes to the potential of, you know, having that steroid drip over this long period of time and supplementing that anti-VEGF if it is necessary afterwards. So, I, so, so you're telling me I need a better marketing agent? Because um, <laughs> I wrote the I wrote I created combination therapy with anti with basically anti-VEGFs and Ozerdex. So it sounds like I need a better marketing. Yeah, we did it and we did it for vein occlusion and we've done it for DME. Um, but you are true. There was a white paper that came out and a lot of people say I'm going to go VEGF, 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 and then when I go to steroids, I never go back. I actually don't believe that, and for a number of reasons. One reason is. Um, steroids are okay when it comes to being an anti-VEGF. They have some anti-VEGF, but they're not as good as a real dedicated anti-VEGF. And one of the things we're, we're fighting in DME is not only just DME, we're fighting diabetic retinopathy. And one thing anti-VEGFs are really good at is they're really good at slowing the progression of retinopathy. As a matter of fact, obviously, there are a number of studies, you know, the, um, you know, protocol S and there's the you know subset of rise and ride and panorama that show 
the fact that they're even regressing retinopathy. So my feeling is I've always got to fight the VEGF fight so that not only am I going to get the mechanism of action on the macular edema, I'm also going to decrease the progression of retinopathy to keep me out of PDR, anterior segment um, neovascularization by giving both anti-VEGFs at some time and a steroid. I mean, I may not need it and like 25% of people didn't need it, which is great. But if you do need it, it's not a bad thing to think about. Now, certainly an important question with any study is how do you feel this has or will change your personal clinical practice? I think one of the things that changes my personal clinical practice is really making me want to use um, alluvian earlier. Because again, noticing about the fact that I'm able to get, based on the clinical trials, an extra line of vision, even in these chronically treated patients over time, that to pull the trigger earlier in steroids, that's the problem. Is The problem is we keep giving anti-VEGFs, and then we jump into Ozodex. And by the time we think about going to the placidolin implant, you're way down the pike. You're at 9, 10, 11 months in a lot of people. And my feeling is, you know, for people that especially um, need decreased treatment burden, that this is not a bad thing to worry about. Yes, obviously the IOP things are something I need to worry about, but the reality is if you look at it, I'm looking at this, depending on your point of view, either 3% or 1.5% of incisional surgery, we can ma manage most of these people. And if they haven't had an IOP response when I put them through Ozodex, alluvian seems like a pretty good way to go. And the reality is I don't need to check the pressure over time. A lower level ocular provider could do the same job. I have a clinic 150 miles away in which I have an optometrist at. He is very capable of checking pressures. Those people are no brainers because it's really hard for them to come up and see me. The burden of shots is very difficult. They're also, you know, yes, there's great copay programs, but you still got to pay for me giving the injection. And, and Alluvian makes a lot of sense. And obviously with the New Day trial coming out, I'm incredibly excited about the potential because many years ago I did an anti-VEGF Ozodex study on treatment naive retinal vein occlusion patients, and we got vision close to Bravo and Cruz. So I would think if, if we could see what happens on treatment naive patients in the New Day trial, we may get a better understanding. Because even looking at the Mead trial for Ozodex, I mean, I was part of that as well. We waited a really long time before people got in. So again, giving it a fair shake, I don't think it's going to replace anti-VEGFs. But I think if I can keep it earlier in my thought process, that's going to be exciting. Obviously, the, you know, ferisumab is something that is going to make the, I mean, I'm thrilled to have more tools in my toolbox, but we're not sure where it's going to play and where, where steroids will play into it. But again, the vast, that 75% of people, I mean, the 25% of people go three years or longer. I mean, that's something to be excited about. So, I mean, I think I've used the, I've used um, I've used alluvian in patients with verisimab um, who need that extra boost, and it, they look pretty good. So again, I think it's not a zero-sum game, and I think we're going to have more, because we all know there are definitely some significant recalcitrant patients with DME that need a booster every once in a while. And having the fact that I can get anti-VEGF, an anti-ENG2, and a steroid, because they all work on different modulators, I think will give us better control of this disease. And there's plenty of data that shows that if we can get a longer acting agent, we'll get better vision because we can, the opposite is that true. Because if we don't have enough, if we undertreat patients, we never get the visual improvements we see in our trials. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that New Day trial. Uh, I think that's going to add even more to this. And like you mentioned, in particular, those patients that have difficulty getting to the clinic, whether it's distance-wise, money-wise, or, you know, mobility-wise, I think these long-term possible solutions really offer them the best chance in maintaining their vision or even improving their vision. Uh, Dr. Singer, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation today. Is there anything else you want to add in that we didn't discuss today? I mean, um, number one, Dylan, thank you so much for having me on. I do think, like I said, the awareness of the, the fact that the more, more we can think about steroids and the more that we are less intimidated by the IOP effects, I mean, I, regardless of, the, of the, you know, what, what we're using in the implants, I think it's not an and or or. I think it's an and. It's just something else to, to add into our arsenal with the understanding that, hey, look, a lot of these treatment burden things um, have already been you know, pretty much addressed by these long-acting implants. But I do think that it's not going to be zero-sum. I do believe that you know, we've, got, we've got a toolbox now. It's not just hammers. We've got some screwdrivers. We've got some pliers why don't we use all our tools to take care of our patients? Because obviously the better we treat our patients, the happier they are. And the, um, you know, the fact is that we will decrease the number of visits they have coming in. And then obviously we're creating, you know, better, not only for our patients, but for their caregivers and for society as well. Thanks again to Dr. Michael Singer, who spoke to us about his article, Three-Year Safety and Efficacy of the Fluocinolone Acetonide Intravitreal Implant for Diabetic Macular Edema, the Paladin Study, available in the June 2022 edition of Ophthalmology. Thank you so much for listening to our discussion today. For any questions regarding this interview or any of our prior interviews, please reach out via email at josh at onticmind.com. As seen from here is a production of Ontic Mind Incorporated. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Dylan Stevens.